simply will not buy the world that the elders have given them. They see too much hypocrisy in it. They see too many things that are wrong with it. And I think that the elders are going to have to realize that they simply can no longer browbeat youth into following its established path. I'm Story. And today we have a very interesting topic to get into with you all. But before we get started, Story, how have you been? How's your week? How are classes? Uh, I've been doing well. Uh, Midterm season was last week and now that's basically over. So uh, final season is just around the corner. (laughs) Uh, But I'm just glad to be here uh, talking with you today. I feel the exact same way. I'm really excited to have our discussion. Um, It's week eight, I think, this coming week, which is really crazy because that means that we only have, I think, four weeks left of the quarter, which seems like a lot, but it's been flying by. Um, I also had a midterm um, recently. I think it went pretty well, but I don't know. I'm taking 17 credits this quarter, which is something I haven't done before just because I've been taking a lot of classes before that required more of my time, but it's been going pretty smooth, so hoping that that will continue through finals. All right. Well, uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, AI regulation and its impact on elections and all that stuff to do with AI and tech and everything. And we have two guests uh, on to discuss it with us. Would you like to introduce yourselves, Vivek and Andre? Um, yeah. Um, hey, what's up? Um, my name is Vivek. Um, I'm a uh, third year at uh, UW uh, studying computer science and physics, maybe math. Uh, just because there's a lot of math classes that overlap with the physics, so I was like, yo, I should probably take those. Um, and that might actually get me to a BA, because the BA requirements are pretty lax. But um, in general, I like to uh, ski. Uh, just huge football fan, basketball fan, too. I uh, love to play guitar. Kind of got back into it after a few month hiatus. Um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah, everyone. Uh, I'm Andre. I am in uh, computer science and philosophy. I also minor in math. Uh, I involved in uh, some AI research in the Allen School of Computer Science. I think uh, my research mainly focuses on how a lot of the development of AI has these implicit assumptions uh, and how those assumptions, when uncritically uh, worked with, might point towards certain limitations when you build AI systems. And so I'm particularly particularly interested in uh, what I call like social metaphysics questions in AI. So the intersection of uh, social questions relating to uh, politics, uh, property, identity, and that intersection with uh, questions of uh, metaphysics like representation, reality, and models. And I think that they're very salient questions uh, for AI today. So excited to talk about it. Awesome. Thank you both so much for introducing yourselves. Um, So I'm just curious, since obviously our podcast is about like current events and politics, uh, what issues are of most interest to you guys? And if you guys have any experience um, like working with whether it's those specific issues or just within politics in general. Um, Yeah, so I I do have a a little bit of experience. 
I think it started uh, actually four years ago in 2020. I can't believe 2020 was four years ago. But um, I was a young child. Okay, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not a child, but a little bit younger than I am now. Uh, and 2020 was a wild year. I mean, we had a pandemic that came on. We had a general election. Um, we had all these questions that we were starting to ask ourselves about racial discrimination that hadn't really been asked in a few years. Um, and I was like, yo, I got to do something. You know, I can't just sit on the sidelines. So I just went to uh, my local member of Congress's campaign because I admired some of the work that she was doing uh, in economic policy. Uh, and I started volunteering, even though in retrospect, uh, it wasn't that great of an idea because she basically had a guaranteed victory. Um, so I don't know why I chose her campaign, but started volunteering and from there just got uh, kind of introduced to a few other people. And then the next summer I interned um, for her campaign as part of a national program organized by um, Representative Jamie Raskin. Um, and it was just really cool. Got to meet a lot of people, got to meet some uh, like civil rights leaders, got to meet some congressional leaders. It was a really cool experience. Um, and I was like, hell, this politics thing, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, then I kind of took a little bit of a break just because after that I entered college. Um, but then currently now I'm just, I'm doing a little bit in politics. I'm the, uh, current vice president of the College Democrats of Washington, which is kind of an organization of college Democrats, uh, at the University of Washington and around seven other chapters, university chapters around the state. And for a little while, uh, a few months ago, I was the Western Regional Director for the College Democrats of America. So basically just kind of coordinated efforts in a bunch of states on the West to uh, elect like Democrats with progressive Democrats all, all up and down the ballot. So that's kind of my experience in politics. But as far as issues um, that I care about, I, I'm really interested in a lot of economic issues. So like, um, especially incentives like the child tax credit, universal basic income, that kind of stuff. And also housing issues, um, healthcare issues, and of course, uh, tech policy. I actually, uh, in my application to the CS department at the University of Washington in my essay, uh, my central thesis was basically like, yo, these folks in Congress, these old guys, they don't know crap about technology, all right? They're asking, like, the CEO of Google why their iPhone is not working. Um, I can do better, but I need to learn computer science to actually do better. That was kind of my central thesis, so... Very interested in uh, tech regulation as well. Can you tell us what yada 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 means? Uh, <laughs> yada, Very yada, uncool. Like the Seinfeld thing. <laughs> no, it's I'm referencing the the clip of what John Kennedy said in Congress. I don't know if you saw that, but uh, 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 I don't think you're I saw absolutely that. right that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just Google, like, a John Kennedy, yada, yada, yada. It's very funny. Uh, Andre, what about you? Yeah, I'm a, a lot less involved in the day-to-day the -day of politics than Vivek is. I think, um, for the better or for the worse, my reading and philosophy has made me pretty wary of jumping to the fray with politics. Again, for the better or for the worse. But I do think that there are a lot of political issues which are very interesting for me, given that I think that there are basically philosophical issues that the state has to intervene in. I think one example, which is interesting, is abortion, um, which seems to me to be a fight over the metaphysics of life, basically. Um, I think there are also a host of other interesting philosophical issues that are actually very 
palpable and concrete when it comes to tech. I think one really interesting one is uh, free speech. Uh, I think there are interesting questions about what counts as speech uh, before, you know, before AI, for instance, uh, speech had certain spatial limitations. I have to say something, you know, it, the most I can say to people is within like a few hundred feet around me. Uh, but then as you have various technologies that allow for the dissemination of speech, speech becomes much more or less uh, dependent on the human body. And so I just think that tech poses a bunch of interesting questions when it comes to these sort of important building blocks of governance and uh, sort of social interaction. Another example that I'm actually really interested in is the notion of intellectual property and copyright. Uh, I mean, what does it mean for me to create something uh, from my mind? I mean, does it is it even a comprehensible notion when you have AI that's able to create things supposedly without any direct human intervention? So I just, whenever I look at all these issues, especially in technology, a lot of them I see as pretty philosophically involved. But at the same, I mean, there's this, you know, the um, I think a lot of people have a, a perception about philosophy, partly true that philosophers kind of sit in their armchairs and just think about things that have no import on the real world. But I think, especially in this domain, uh, I think philosophy is 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 very important. I think everyone does a little bit of philosophy when they talk about these issues. Uh, all right. Well, let's get into. I think let's get into some of the philosophy uh, around AI regulation. So, like, uh, what do you see as like the the big debate in you know that that policymakers are having philosophically about uh, tech regulation? Yeah, I think um, I think broadly there are uh, two. I think there are, there are two general issues that people are thinking about when it comes to uh, regulating AI, and I think it. One of them is regulating how we use AI, and the other one is regulating how we develop AI. So on the first one with using AI, I think um, there are things like, for instance, uh, and this gets into issues with like AI in uh, elections, but how, what are the kind of regulations, like, regulations when it comes to how you're able to use AI? Uh, can, for instance, elections uh, or election campaigns use extreme amounts of AI to pump out their message at an insane rate, uh, are you able to, when you put AI in things like Tesla cars and they, they get into accidents, right? Who's to blame? So I think one, one central um, quandary in terms of how to use AI is that traditionally in law, you have all these questions, well, not questions, you have these, these concepts about uh, uh, responsibility and intention. And those are just very hard to deal with when it comes to AI, because it's not clear that there's, you know, when the, when the, the self-driving car turns a certain way, like who who is it who intended it right when your election uh, campaign AI you know material writer spits out some campaign lines and you know there's a there's a hubbub about it uh, who is the staffer behind it there's no staffer behind it so I think the notion of personhood is a very concrete difficulty when it comes to how people decide how to regulate AI I think the other big camp is uh, how to develop AI I think this is huge. Uh, it gets back to the issues with uh, copyright and intellectual property. So I think a while ago, there are these all these artists that sued uh, Stable Diffusion for training uh, image generation models based on their artwork. And their claim was, hey, this is my artwork, and you took my artwork to build this commercial product without asking for my consent. And so you've basically stolen my, my work, my, my IP. And I think that's interesting because 
even though you have this AI that produces work or a work of art that superficially doesn't look anything like any of the individual artists' creations, uh, that work was still in some abstract way linked to their work. So there are questions about labor and property here, like um, how do things work out in the information economy in terms of is inf this information my information or your information? Another concrete one, which relates to what Vivek was talking about with economics, is uh, job security. Uh, what happens when uh, AI starts taking over an increasing amount of work, uh, both blue collar and white collar? Uh, uh, I think it's 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 pretty tricky. Like uh, I think Andrew Yang made this essential uh, essential part of his uh, justification for both how and where we get UBI money from. So. Uh, I think these are two general uh, uh, camps, how we use AI and how we develop AI. Uh, and there, there are a lot of issues, I think, uh, philosophically in both. Uh, so how do, um, how do you think that, that Congress should tackle these issues? What, what's, what, which side should they be on? How should we regulate the development and, and use of AI? I actually think um, Congress is not doing that bad of a job right now. I mean, most people think for everything that Congress just sucks. I mean, Congress has like a 13% approval rating nationwide. But <clears throat> they're moving, um, from what I can tell, very, very quickly on a lot of these issues. I mean, usually it takes, there's a phase lag of like years from sub technology to the regulation. But um, like the, the nationalwide Congress and statewide Congresses are moving pretty fast. I mean, if this podcast was held a month ago, I would have had less information um, in my notes to kind of talk about. But just one thing that I was reading about right before this is like um, uh, bills that Wisconsin passed in their statewide legislature about how any anything AI generated needs to have a label um, that says it's AI generated. And then if it doesn't, you have to pay some like fine in the thousands or something. So I think... We are moving pretty fast, and there's actually a lot of bipartisan approval on, on AI. I think the way I look at it is that you cannot stop technology from progressing. I mean, many efforts have been made to do this over the years with any kind of new technology, whether um, it's like self-driving cars, people said, oh, we shouldn't have them, whether it's even if you go back hundreds of years, um, industrial revolution, people you're losing, thousands of jobs were lost in the industrial revolution. Uh, there were mass riots towards like the end of the 18th century about these jobs being lost. Uh, billions of dollars in property were damaged. But I think technology cannot be stopped. You just need to, you just need to regulate what you can, especially when it comes to um, applications in national security or applications in just really, really critically sensitive areas. So I think, first of all, they should kind of take a domain-specific approach um, saying like, hey, one thing that we cannot do is like point AI at like nuclear weapons manufacturing or nuclear distribution, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, um, because that could have like consequences that we don't, we don't foresee. Um, and I think we have to move fast on this, and it's a good thing that Congress is moving fast, just because the rate of increase is something that is just nobody could have predicted. I mean, I, I just saw this Reddit comment like a, a few a few weeks ago. Uh, not a few, sorry, a few, a few 
I think it was yesterday, actually, um, talking about how AI text-to-video, this is from three years ago, AI text-to-video will not occur in our lifetimes. Um, but we just saw OpenAI's new uh, product release yesterday showing how, like, yo, this is happening in real time. The future is getting built right in front of us. So I guess my central thesis, I guess, is we cannot stop technology. We just need to harness it for our good, and we need to harness it and make sure that it's not applied in certain specific harmful ways. Uh, I, uh, I, I agree on most fronts, but I want to kind of prod out a few points. I think, firstly, I think the claim that um, you can't stop technology is, uh, if not incorrect, uh, possibly dangerous. I think uh, certainly I, I, I get the idea that uh, it might be unproductive to stop technology in certain ways. But I think throughout history, there are many examples of times in which possibly too late, but nevertheless, we still have stopped technologies because we have concerns about them. I think the most obvious one is nuclear technologies that uh, collectively we've seized a lot of the research to build nuclear weapons because we have an interest collectively against those. I think uh, we should ask those questions about technologies like AI also. Uh, of course, I'm not trying to compare AI to nuclear weapons. I don't think the cost is as clear, but this is just to say that I don't really think that uh, uh, it's kind of, there's this kind of teleological universal law that technologies are going to develop to their own you know, fruition. Which is to say, I think, Vic, you also said this yourself a little bit, which is that regulation can play an important role in stopping and setting limits when we need it. Something else I want to say is uh, a lot of the stuff that you mentioned, Vivek, pertain to the first thing I talked about, which is the use of AI. And I think the use of AI is definitely easy for people to be bipartisan about because both Democrats and Republicans can agree that you know AI shouldn't be maybe pushing sexually explicit material to children on platforms, right? I think that's pretty, that's easy to get behind. Uh, and I think a whole host of, of AI use questions are easy to get behind. But I think on the second part, AI development, I think uh, it's a lot more difficult what to do with uh, things like jobs, what to do with things like uh, uh, funding private versus public uh, groups in terms of research, what to do with questions of uh, IP and intellectual property, labor. I think those we've seen a lot more partisan divides about, and I think arguably those are the more important debates uh, for the long term. Which is just to say, yes, I think the, the, the uh, progress that we've made so far is is good, but there's a lot to be desired also. Last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, I haven't gone too deep into the, the, the recent AI work, but just stuff that I've seen at the national level in terms of AI regulation is written in very uh, vague terms. And that's understandable because at the federal level, you have to write things in vague terms. There's not much you can be specific about at the, at the federal level. Which is to say that I think it's great that we're setting boundaries, but also we should be careful not to uh, ask too much of them, just because you know abstract language is interpreted as abstract, uh, which means that you can always twist things in certain ways, possibly without substantive uh, change. Uh, I would just like to say that I really liked both of your responses to that question, because again, like this is something that I don't know that much about, and I feel like you both explained it very clearly. Um, Story, is it okay if I actually ask a follow-up question? Because I'm kind of curious. It kind of was sparked by something that Andre said. Uh, yeah, go for it. Okay. 
Um, I was just curious. We kind of, you guys kind of already mentioned like some recent things that have been going on, but I was just curious, especially Vivek, you talked about earlier how a lot of times like tech CEOs, like they don't really understand like the inner workings of um, like the actual technology. And I was just wondering, I don't know if you guys have been following at all the recent congressional hearings with the creators of like Snapchat and Facebook, like, you know, all those like very high profile people. And I was just wondering if you guys think that this, that the, like the series of congressional hearings was productive or important, or do you think it was just kind of meaningless and just a way for members of Congress to look like they're acting when really they're just not doing very much? Yeah, I think, um, I think more of the latter to be honest. Um, just, I, I didn't watch those hearings in full. I just saw a few small clips. I saw the like dramatic moment where Mark Zuckerberg turned around and apologized to the families of uh, kids who have been killed um, because of social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram. Um, but I think one thing that's important to note is that like two days later, Facebook released their earnings um, and he gained like $30 billion in a single day uh, because of new user growth. So the market really doesn't care about these hearings as far as I can tell. Um, and I think there's kind of a differentiation that I see between like these social media hearings and AI hearings, because as far as I can tell, like no major legislation, I, I, this might be totally wrong, but no major like social media legislation has come out of any of these hearings. You have all these CEOs brought in to testify. Uh, and some of the questions that are asked are asked are actually pretty good questions, you know, but Nothing really gets done, um, especially in the U.S. Uh, the way I look at U.S. politics is that they are very, very big tech friendly as compared to a lot of other countries and organizations around the globe. And I, I uh, identify as a Democrat on most issues, but this is kind of one problem that I have is that a lot of Democrats I see are just way too friendly with big tech, especially Democrats from uh, like California. Um, when you compare it to like the European Union, I mean, there's a reason why iPhones can now be charged with, or uh, with a USB-C. Uh, there's a reason why, um, like, we cannot use personalized data for recommendations with Instagram. Uh, that's because of what the EU has done. So the EU changing, uh, the EU, EU setting policies has kind of affected the way these companies operate, even in the United States. Um, and I think we might tend to see this same thing happen with AI. Um, actually, unanimously, two weeks ago, uh, from yesterday, the EU passed this policy um, that is called the Artificial Intelligence Act that kind of bans AI systems carrying what they call unacceptable risk. Um, so that's AI that kind of infers like someone's sexual orientation or infers like sensitive items about someone. They just outright ban that. So I think, yeah, it is a little bit performative, a lot of these hearings. Um, and especially in the U.S., we need to, we need to use maybe get a little bit tougher. Uh, I I agree with the uh, assessment about the performativity. I think, I just thought it was, I mean the 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 Zuckerberg moment was, I thought it was a little bit uh, ridiculous. I think having him stand there. I mean it was such a televised event. I think it was just. I mean. And, and then holding up the pictures of the of the dead children, so I think it it's kind of made a mockery of the whole deal. With regards to the, I think the the the, the hearing was about the question of um, child safety on these platforms. Is the question important? Yes, 
uh, are they being productively discussed in the hearings? Um, I, I have doubts. I think, um, I think one thing is uh, what Vic talked about at the beginning in terms of tech literacy among uh, legislators, I think is, uh, I think it's important. Uh, I think there's this idea that you can be sort of a, a non-technical person and uh, make decent legislation about these systems because they're just continuations of previous technologies. Um, and I, 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 it's true to some extent, but also not true in many other ways. Uh, I think really you do have to have a somewhat technical understanding of these systems uh, in order to legislate effectively uh, uh, how, how, how they should be you know, dealing with users, how users should be able to work on the platforms. I think one thing is, that I, I'm going to be a little bit provocative here, uh, and I, I don't want to diminish the question of child safety at all, uh, nor the, the suicides that uh, children on, on these apps uh, have been committing. But I do also want to say that I think that, um, yes, uh, if, if I may be a little, a little bit provocative, I think you know the, the Republican uh, Party has made a big deal out of protecting children, and I think it's part of a, a, a very large uh, uh, kind of agenda on the part of the Republican Party to present themselves as protecting children. And it's not just from big tech. It's also from, you know, the gay agenda and, you know, critical race theory and so on and so forth. So it's part of this uh, sort of ideology of the purity of children, that they must be protected at all costs. And then the justification is you have, you know, the government come in and liberate uh, uh, these children from whatever, you know, evil things are holding them hostage. Again, not to, not to say that that, um, that that exonerates big tech from their responsibility to children, but I just think it is part of the spotter campaign. I think it also allows for uh, uh, responsibility to be totally put on the big tech companies. Uh, uh, and certainly they should have, tech, they should have uh, uh, some amount of responsibility. But I think also, I think you have to have a nuanced analysis. I mean, again, not to make it a responsible comparison, but uh, think about cars also, right? Like cars are the leading death I believe for young adults um, in America, car crashes. Uh, when 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 a when a when a when a, a young adult kills themselves uh, when they're when they're driving the car too fast and they make the wrong swerve, are going to go tell Ford, you know, put up the pictures of the dead children and, and ask the Ford CEO to apologize? Like it'd be a little bit ridiculous. And so I think I think for 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 people to, to suggest that children are killing themselves because Mark Zuckerberg, you know, is is uh, dangling the strings of the algorithm is a little bit ridiculous. I think responsibility has to be shared between uh, certainly the big tech platforms, but also, you know, in the education system among families and also, you know, the children themselves. I think it's a very complex issue. And when it gets put in these hearings as kind of performative witch hunts, uh, it, it, it just makes mockery of these of these problems. And I think it doesn't move them forward, maybe even backwards. Yeah, uh, Andre, so I, I want to add one oh, story if you want to go. I just wanted to you add go, something you go that Andre was saying. Yeah, I have okay. a different topic. Okay. I just want to add one thing to what you're saying, Andre, too, is like one thing that does, that like really doesn't make sense to me as well, kind of going off what you're saying is it doesn't seem like the responsibility is fully on the tech companies as well because a lot of times these parents who are getting all upset they don't really monitor their kids. And if it's young kids getting on social media at a young age that are impressionable, I do really feel like that is a responsibility of the parents to know what's going on with their kids. I'm not saying to be over the top and monitor everything because obviously there are certain 
ages that they recommend for Instagram. Like I think Instagram is 13 years and up, but I still think that there is a level of responsibility on the parents to check in with their kids and, you know, make sure that like their kids are prepared. Like people are going to be mean online and I'm not saying it's okay, but I think that the amount of unfortunately damaging and just awful things you can see on social media can be a lot and maybe have a different impact on different people. So I think I definitely agree with you. Like the little bit I did see of the hearings, I was kind of off put by because I do think that a lot of the responsibility also does lie on the parents to do their job as a parent um, and, you know, look out for their kids. Not to put too much responsibility, but at the same time, I just, I do completely agree with you on that topic for sure. Uh, I wanted to talk about... uh something that we've, I think we've touched on this a few times on the show before, but that is the potential existential risk of AI. Uh, and and I'm, I'm a believer in it. I, I think that uh, if we ever create some kind of AI that's smarter than humans, then we're all doomed. Um, and I think we need to, to do everything we can to stop that. So that's my question is, uh, do you agree with that? And, you know, uh, what are some of the other, like, big risks of developing more powerful AI systems? And how can we stop that from happening? I will defer to Andre on this question because um, he's probably like the most accomplished undergrad researcher on AI at UW. Um, so he can kind of speak to whether it's possible for us to even build uh, these systems in the first place. Um, but I just personally, I would say yes, um, because the way I look at humanity, the rate of improvement of technology is increasing. So. Okay, I don't know why I'm bringing this, but the second derivative, if you've taken calculus, of improvement for humanity is positive. So we are, like, increasing like crazy in terms of the amount of progress we make in society. So who knows where we will be in 50 years or 70 years or wherever, but Andre, take it away. Or six months. Or six months. Um, thank you, Vivek, for the, the compliment, although I, 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 I wouldn't put myself that high. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Story, I want to understand your perspective a little bit more deeply. Um, when you say existential, do you mean existential in maybe an economic sense where uh, many, if not most people, lost their jobs? Or uh, in a Terminator sense where you know war drones go rogue and kill everyone? Uh, what exactly is the risk that you're imagining um, concretely? Uh, all of the above. Like really the, the Terminator scenario where it completely takes over the world and kills everyone. Uh, although the, the economic one is, is also a worry, I guess, but uh, who needs jobs if you're dead? <laughs> That's true. Um, well, I guess uh, there are a few ways to approach this. I mean, one approach is just a, a technical question, which is, can we create AI that, let's say, can we create AI that has all the intellectual capacities of a human, possibly more, because they're able to compute things faster and solve things that we never could and go places we never could. Uh, uh, with regards to the technicalities of that, uh, I think most AI researchers would say, well, I won't say most, but I'll say many AI researchers think that maybe it's theoretically possible. Will we get that in uh, uh, a few months or even a few years? I think mostly everyone uh, would say no. Uh, that being said, well, okay, I, I think some of the reasons why are because, um, I mean, Vivek brought up calculus, I'll continue the analogy. 
you can take your second derivatives and all you want, but you know if you're if you're in a function and you hit the uh, a local uh, uh, maximum, right? That's all you're gonna get to 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 go f further higher up on your function. You have to first go down a little bit and then go up, which is to say that maybe we're we're approaching a local minima in terms of AI development. Currently, we have um, neural network based approaches and every single work from the early 2000s that's done work in AI has adopted fundamentally the same paradigm uh, of learning. Uh, and it's still a debated question of at what the limits are there. I mean, this is a, this gets into the philosophical uh, uh, quandaries where it's like, uh, can you, for instance, uh, access or simulate intelligence only with language? is one question. I mean, we as humans, right, are embodied figures in the world. Uh, our brains are not uh, neural network-like. They have a variety of mechanisms which are different from neural networks, which is just to say that I think this should give us reasons to think that, uh, give us reasons to think that technically speaking, we might not see something like human intelligence for a while. That being said, though, I think I'm, I'm more interested in the, in the economic part, which is uh, there definitely is a very palpable risk that uh, people will lose their jobs and there might not be places uh, for people to replace. Uh, there might not be places that will allow them to find new jobs. I think that's definitely a reality. Uh, something else is, I mean, if I can speculate a little bit, um, have you guys uh, read that book, uh, Fully Automated Luxury Communism by uh, Aaron uh, I know the term, but I haven't read it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's... Uh, I think it's something worth thinking about. So when, when Marx was writing about uh, uh, labor, right, uh, I think a lot of people might superficially read Marx and interpret him as sort of an r slash anti-work person. Uh, humans shouldn't labor. Uh, it's exploitative, all of it. And that's not what Marx says. Marx says that uh, there are two types of labor, one which is kind of grunt work in the factories, which is uh, working for profit, and the other one is working for self-expression, uh, a greater unveiling of your self-potential. And I think what Marx would say is, when we have all these AI that takes care of our basic, uh, our basic needs, uh, uh, the McDonald's worker doesn't need to uh, spend eight hours, nine hours, ten hours a day uh, working, you know, giving out French fries. They can, I don't know, go and paint art, go and write novels, better understand the depth of the human soul. Right. And so I, I really personally, I'm, I, I feel pretty optimistic that uh, we'll be able to transform our economic system in a, in a pretty significant way with AI. And that that will allow uh, each and each and every one of us to to have kind of a, a better uh, existence, a more meaningful existence, isn't that which isn't trapped, you know, towards the ends within a restrictive economic system. Of course, it's very far out. Right. So this is pure speculation. I think in the, in the meanwhile, the, the, the big issue really is economic and not necessarily uh, uh, Terminator style. But we can talk more about that. Okay. Uh, well, I'd love to talk more about it. Vivek, do you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, I think Andre brought up some really good points about how, hey, even if this is going to happen, um, this is not what we need to worry about right now. Because a lot of the fear is like, AI will take our jobs. AI will take our jobs. But it's not a fear. I mean, it's a reality. Uh, there are I've seen examples of a lot of writers who have, like technical writers even, who have lost their jobs, high-paying jobs, um, because 
ChatGPT can basically do 90% of what they can do for free. Um, so, I mean, I think there is an argument to be made that, hey, this has happened with every single piece of new technology in human history. Um, like, um, handmade items in general. Like, and no, no item is handmade now. So, there were people who spent their entire lives figuring out, like, how, how can I, like, weave this piece of fabric the best way I can? This is knowledge passed down through generations who just lost that entire knowledge, lost their jobs through, um, like, factories getting created. Um, but I think there is something a little bit different about AI, um, both in terms of the quantity of jobs that it can impact and in terms and because uh, of the unexplainability of a lot of AI systems. So even like, even in, uh, let's take an industry like aviation. Um, I mean, we could get AI to fly a plane, Loki, no problem. Like that would not be so difficult. Even flying a plane in general is not so difficult a task, but that is something that we basically cannot do uh, under current regulation because AI is unexplainable. You don't have some like tree of decisions where it's like, oh, if if um, like the temperature is above such and such and the wind speeds are above such and such, then turn this novel like a little bit to the right. Like that's that's not really how it works, um, in so much as. Um, it's been thrown out, this term has been thrown out a lot, but there's kind of a black box of explainability. And there's been a lot of work done, a lot of research done on explainability, um, but still some aspects are unexplainable. So I think there is something a little bit different in general about just both the impact and the technological aspect of artificial intelligence. Um, but yeah, these are important questions to discuss and this is not something that's going to happen. This is something that is happening right now as we speak. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to give, uh, I wanted to talk a bit more about the Terminator scenario. Um, so like my basic argument for it is that like, if you have some super intelligence that is smarter than humans, which I guess the question is like, if that's possible, I think like, I think OpenAI literally says they're trying to get to that point at least, uh, of AGI, whatever that means. Um, but if you have something like that, it would, no matter what its goal was, as long as it had one, it would always be incentivized uh, in a convergent way to try and make itself indestructible, try and expand its own capabilities, and try and essentially you know, gather as much resources, which would mean like taking over the world. Uh, there's this quote from, I think it's Elias Yudkowsky who said, like, uh, it does not care about you and you're made of atoms that it can use for something else. Um, so if we ever got to that point, like, how do we, how do we, how do we, A, how do we turn it back if it's smarter than us and it's incentivized to prevent us from uh, turning it off? And like, B, like why, you know, is there anything we can do to, to essentially reduce the risk of that happening if, if it is possible, if, if such a, a technology ever being developed? Yeah, I think, um, I think a few, th a few, points uh maybe are in order i think the first one is that so like i like nick bostrom has his um the the, the paperclip uh ai thing where 
the idea. I mean, uh, story correct me if I'm if I'm not getting the details right, but I think um, you have an AI that's tasked to create uh, paper clips. Okay, innocuous enough of a task, but then you know it it needs to make more and more and more paper clips, and so maybe it uses the entire spool of wire, and so now it needs to go and uh, uh, you know break down your house to have more materials, and then needs to take over countries to to build you know uh, paper clip manufacturing factories. And so I think uh, I think a lot of the the concern that people have is that if you have uh, a sort of a single goal that you want to optimize, and then you just set this creature loose in the world, trying to optimize on that metric, then it'll stop at no ends uh, to do that. Uh, I think that I'm 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 hesitant to accept that for many reasons. I think firstly, we as humans are not multi I mean, we're not single objective uh, organisms. We have a variety of things that drive us and explain our behavior. We tried to find find a single pole or metric which explained every single action that you do. I don't think you'd find it. Uh, we have a variety of wants, complex and simple, all across Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I think similarly, we've seen that when we try to build a complex, uh, complexly intelligent agents like large language models, like video generation models, uh, they're actually not very good at uh, aiming towards complex tasks because they also exhibit multi-objective uh, uh, sort of behavior. And I think no surprise because they're trained on the corpus of human knowledge, uh, language, media, uh, which is also produced with multi-objective uh, uh, sort of uh, outcomes. So that's to say that uh, I think that it's it's very, it's maybe uh, uh, possibly a fallacy uh, to, to be thinking about AI as kind of infinitely uh, aimed at this one singular goal, especially because uh, goals are often ill-defined. Well, I guess that, that that's part of the concern also, right? Which is if your goal is ill-defined and does whatever you want to do to stop that, uh, whatever it will to attain that goal, how do you stop that or set barriers? Uh, I think part of that might be a technical question. And I think that I'm, I'm, I'm honestly not, um, not concerned that researchers won't Okay, let me rephrase this. I'd I'd bet my money that researchers are more rather than less uh, concerned about uh, safety metrics as safety measures as they'll be developed. Uh, There's currently huge investment in safety research for models which can do a lot less, a lot, lot, lot less than the scenarios that we're imagining. And so I definitely think that the safety question will be in good hands. Uh, But with regards to the question of control, though, I I think control is really central to a lot of these scenarios where it's like if you have something which preserves itself uh, and is out of our control, how do we uh, stop it? I mean, again, I want to look at history um, for the examples. I, I don't think it's a unique case. Uh, one example, for instance, might be like computer viruses, which are kind of designed uh, to, to spread. They kind of have this aspect of self-preservation. Also, like nuclear disasters also spread on their own. Uh, without uh, sort of much control on our end. I think likewise with all these examples, I mean, if it starts, there's not much we can do. Uh, but I think that it's 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 going to be a long road and, and pretty difficult to, to get there. And just going back to my previous point, like I think given how AI development is happening now, even if we do get to a point where there is that kind of existential risk, uh, there will be sufficient investment in, in safety in order for that to to really be a, a very small uh, small reality, I'm uh, kind of in agreement with Andre on the majority of his points. Um, I think first of all, 
the kind of two doomsday scenarios that we do see thrown around are evil AI. Um, so I think kind of what we saw in Terminator with Skynet um, or the paperclip situation. And I think of the two, um, really like the latter is the far more, far more likely scenario. Um, and even in that situation, I think an agent smart enough to take over world governments for the sole purpose of producing paperclips. Um, and, and trust, taking over world governments is something that really, I mean, no human can, can really... I know a lot of people in politics who would give their right arm and their left arm to be able to take over the U.S. government like that. Because um, it's not so easy of a feat. Um, we do have some safe checks and balance, uh, some, uh, some like checks and balances and just stuff going around. So something smart enough to do that, I feel like would not be dumb enough to kill human civilization just for the purpose, just for a singular purpose. We will have enough safeguards in place by that time that, and it'll be able to arguably think for itself by that time. So I think in that scenario, um, that scenario is not very likely either. And definitely the first scenario of actively trying to kill humans, if it has like some sort of sentience, um, is not very likely either. But that's not to say we should stop like investing in AI safety research. Because A, like we do want to prevent the likelihood of the scenarios, even if they are low likelihood, because I mean a one percent chance of wiping out humanity is pretty bad. Like even if we had a 1% chance of that happening, that is something we would want to mitigate to the highest possible extent. And even, even though those scenarios may seem unlikely, there are a lot of other plausible scenarios, uh, like we talked about with economic impacts or AI being used to influence elections um, that we are already seeing in this world. And a lot of other impacts of AI that are far more tangible and yet extremely harmful in their own right. Stork, could you ask a quick question? Uh, do you consider yourself uh, a long-termist with regards to AI issues, AI safety issues? Uh, long-termist. Uh, can you define that real quick? I've heard it before, but I, not in a while. Yeah, long-termism, long-termism in the sense that when confronted with short-term issues uh, versus long-term issues, even though short-term issues are more palpable, uh, they're at a much smaller scale than the potential devastation of very large-scale things like climate change or an AI singularity. And so we should invest much more in long-term efforts rather than short-term ones. Um, I'd say generally, yes, I, I would put myself in that category. Um, not that you don't do anything about the short-term issues, uh, but you know the, the existential ones, the, the big ones, are, are things that you should be worrying about um, very much. Uh, but let me let me talk a bit about the um, the nuclear comparison because that's happened a bit before. So you said that like nuclear disasters can happen, um, obviously not in the scale that I'm talking about of, of the entire world essentially being destroyed. Uh, but we've actually we've done to great lengths to prevent uh, essentially you know people that we can't deter from getting nuclear weapons because that's you know why people are often fine with weapons is because they're possessed by states which are supposed to behave rationally. Um, they don't always, but, uh, we haven't seen a, a nuclear war yet. 
but there's been lots of worries about groups like Al-Qaeda getting weapons from Pakistan or from AQCon. Um, and I guess, like, AI is a concern there, too, right? So even if we say, like, uh, that, you know, it won't destroy the world on its own for whatever reason, uh, what about the potential mal- malicious use scenario where some, you know, terrorist group gets uh, access to it and is able to use that to increase their capabilities to, to cause harm? Um, I think we've, I think there's, there's been at least one example of, of an AI creating new formulas for chemical weapons. Uh, do you think that's a problem also? Yeah, well, um, I guess, uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, there's one question, which is, are we, is the, is the acceptability of the situation dependent on the user or the case? So for instance, when it comes to chemical weapons, is it that we would want a model to create, be able to synthesize new chemical, possibly weapons for the U.S. government, but not for uh, you know the Taliban or something? Or is it that unilaterally no technology should be able to accelerate the search for chemical weapons? Uh, if it's the former, where you know one agent can use it but one agent can't, then I think this is no different than other technology situations where, as you said, we want to keep it in the hands of some people and not others. If it's uh, a unilateral thing where, you know, no uh, uh, technology should be able to do this, uh, then I think it's, uh, well, it's it's on the on the developer's part. And I think um, there is work on that. So for instance, OpenAI, uh, none of their products allow for the production of sexually explicit material images or, or text. And I think that's one sort of tamer example of how t- uh, technologies can be built to have limited uh, uh, capacities. I don't know if that's satisfactory for you or not, though. So let me know what you think. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously, there's there's safety measures that we can take, I guess. Uh, on that question, yeah, I, I think we agree there. Like, uh, and, and yeah, obviously, I, I don't know if it's possible to limit proliferation of this thing to only governments, right? Because, I mean, all you need is, inter- is an internet connection to get to ChatGPT. Uh, so it really is about the capabilities. Um, but then, like, there's the other question of, like, uh, emergent capabilities. Like you mentioned, like, AIs have, like, random goals like humans that we can't necessarily predict. Uh, I think there's been lots of cases of AIs behaving unpredictably. I think uh, this was a while. I think this was a while ago, right when, like, the Bing AI came out. There were It was, like, a, you know, going crazy and, like, telling people that it was in love with them and just uh, getting the date wrong on purpose to annoy people or something. Uh, but yeah, so I guess, so my argument is that we should uh, rely on the precautionary principle and we should severely be limiting uh, AI capability to, to prevent things like this from happening that you know, range from you know, things that might be bad but not that bad to up to existential risk. Yeah, I think that makes sense, um, and I think that AI researchers AI researchers agree with you. Um, and I think a lot of the techniques that people use for AI human alignment are directed towards less um, less sort of idiosyncratic uh, behavior. When it comes to unpredictability, uh, certainly yes, unpredictability is a is a is a challenge. Uh, I would say like sort of philosophically, I mean, language also is, is part of what makes language powerful is this unpredictability. 
that you can synthesize new ideas uh, and new with you know new combinations of words, and they can stand for something significant. So just philosophically, you know, it's interesting and important that language has some degree of unpredictability because it also can be we- you know not weaponized. It can be used in many uh, uh, good ways. You know, the hypothetical new vaccine for some new disease uh, might come from some good um, unpredictable combination. I think uh, these are uh, largely probably technical questions though, that are being worked on. Um, and I, I do think that uh, researchers, are, researchers are in agreement with uh, what you said as the, which, which principle did you call it again? The um, uh, precautionary principle. Precautionary principle. Yeah, I, 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 I think that uh, most people working on the forefront of AI are in agreement with that. Yeah, I'm kind of in agreement with that too. Although, um, if we go back to the uh, nuclear analogy, um, I personally actually think nuclear weapons pose more of a danger to society than um, AI, at least in the foreseeable future, next 10 to 15 years. Um, Because the worst case scenario for nuclear weapons is the same thing as the worst case scenario for artificial intelligence. Like, AKA, we all die. Uh, There have been, I think, studies um, shown that, hey, even if, let's say, the most likely scenarios like India, Pakistan, get into a nuclear war, even if only 100 bombs were to be dropped, um, that could could actually end the world. Um, I mean, obviously, they don't know for sure. Um, Nobody has tested dropping 100 bombs in quick succession, but that could cause a nuclear winter that would allow us to not be able to grow crops and such and such. Um, and also just, uh, I remember reading through history, uh, like a, a book one time on the Cuban Missile Crisis and how one dude apparently stopped uh, the Soviet Union from nuking America. <laughs> at one point I was like, what the hell? Like That happened at multiple some, points in that crisis. <laughs> this is some crazy shit, you know? Um, and even now, just like 10 minutes before we um, got on this podcast, I got... Uh, uh, a New York Times alert on my phone saying, like, the Biden administration fears Russia putting a nuke in space. And I was like, what? So I think, um, yes, this is definitely an issue. Um, but I don't know why I just started, 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 started suddenly talking about nuclear weapons. But um, I've done a lot of reading on, like, uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear regulation and stuff. I used to be really into that. I wrote, like, eight middle school essays on the same topic. Um but I think that is a huge issue as well. And kind of, we see AI as this huge looming threat, but we also have huge looming threats. I mean, right in front of us, staring us in the face. Yeah, well, uh, I, I'm in a class on, on nuclear weapons right now, um, and it's really interesting. Um, and I think you're right that India-Pakistan is probably the, the most likely uh, place where it would break out. But, like, uh, Pakistan's had nukes for about, for more than 25 years at this point. And they haven't gotten into a nuclear war yet. And they've been on hair trigger the whole time. And I think at one point they've like, they moved nukes to Afghanistan and they didn't, they somehow didn't get stolen. Um, so I guess I'm a bit more optimistic about nuclear weapons because uh, I think deterrence works. Like India is not going to attack Pakistan because they know that Pakistan is going to retaliate, which means that we're, <laughs> we haven't seen a war yet and, and we probably won't. So the, the most likely really bad nuclear scenario is that someone that can't be deterred like Al-Qaeda gets access to one. Um, and obviously, you know, when that happens yet, yeah. and I'm, I'm worried about Pakistan, about that happening in Pakistan. 
Um, and my professor who's done a lot of work on this is very worried about it happening in Iran, uh, which is, you know, the big issue right now. Um, but the issue with superintelligence is that you can't uh, deter it. Once it exists, uh, you know, it'll wipe us out and it doesn't have to necessarily be triggered by, by a state. Um, can we, I, I'm wondering if we can clarify a little bit the conditions in, in which superintelligence is brought about. Do you think superintelligence will come about all of a sudden uh, or slowly? And who will make it? Uh, and who will fund it? I just want to get a clear picture of how I imagine superintelligence coming about, just because I think um, it's, I think we can sort of create uh, scenarios in our minds, but it's important to, to kind of trace out um, how, how we might get there from our current world. Um, well, I mean, anything is, is slow, right? It's, it's, isn't, it's built on the back of a lot of work. Um, I'm not a computer science expert, but from what I've read, there are a lot of people that said it could basically happen at some point it could happen overnight, like without warning that like, you know, and obviously you, it would be, have been built on a lot of work, but it would essentially come, uh, come out surprise in a surprising way that, uh, maybe some people could predict, but others couldn't. Uh, but then like from that point it would, it would essentially grow massively. I think it's, it's called like the singularity. Um, and I think it, it could happen from any number of companies that are working on AI. Like, uh, I think is Google's the most advanced model right now. It's changing like all the time, but like Google, open AI, I think open AI and Google are in a little cat fight. Yeah. Uh, okay. I see. Uh, but it could happen um, from, from any of those. Yeah. And when you say grow, um, what do you mean by grow? Uh, it, it would rapidly increase its own capabilities, either by like finding new ways to train itself faster or replicate itself in, in different ways, any number of things. I don't think we could predict exactly how. It's like uh, trying to predict how the best chess AI would beat you in chess. Yeah, I see. Um, OK, I mean, um... I guess as a personal opinion, um, again, with these things, I think it's, it's hard to be exact. As a personal opinion, um, I find it difficult to believe that uh, superintelligence is an on and off switch. Um, I think it, it probably is more uh, you know, uh, graded, which is to say that, that you know, if you go to sleep overnight, um, you, and you know, the, the, the AI might be better than before, uh, but not in a way which is uh, sort of qualitatively different. Uh, that's just my opinion, though. Um, in terms of, um, I think that, I think that the idea that um, there's sort of this uh, AI model developed in a sort of lonely lab, and then it sort of grows and, and self-develops uh, overnight and sort of spreads all over the world is. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm interested in like uh, literary analysis. So I think, first of all, that that is part of a broader set of narratives. So Frankensteinian, uh, we have sort of a, 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 a creature created by human, which uh, overcomes human ultimately. And it's kind of this beautiful, tragic, romantic story of, you know, humanity coming to, to reconcile with the fact that they've created something much bigger than themselves. And so I think that kind of narrative um, of the uncontrollability of our creations uh, has a specific origin. So I think we should, you know, we should be aware that, 
when we imagine that these situations are not objective situations, but they come from this lineage of, of stories in this tradition. Um, I mean, when it comes to these scenarios, when we talk about them, I think if we're going to set up the premise of a superintelligence, which, you know, by definition in this, in this scenario, you know, overcomes all humans, overcomes all the barriers we set up, then uh, I really don't know what kind of um, answer one would give uh, towards that uh, than just that it would, you know, it would kill us all. Uh, but there are many ways that we could all die. Uh, and so I think uh, going back to uh, what was said before about, well, how might technology like this develop? I think that, um, I think that, first of all, when AI models are used, right, they're used in very specific situations with specific goals. Uh, they're uh, highly monitored um, and they have specific limitations and use cases. They have certain accesses and inaccess points. Uh, when people talk about the growth, for instance, exponential growth of AI, um, they often imagine AI sort of, uh, uh, first of all, training itself. I mean, OpenAI hires you know hundreds of people to train models. It's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, and we're also limiting the amount of training data available for models. Uh, we've covered a lot of the internet already in terms of uh, putting those into language models. Uh, they also have to get access to different tools and points. And that's not a, an AI thing. It's a, there are mathematically proven uh, 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 security points that things human or AI can't get past unless they're authorized. And so because of that, I'm just ultimately at the conclusion that if we do get superintelligence, it'll be because people at multiple levels of authority have given the okay to have uh, superintelligence, which is to say that, you know, if we end up in a superintelligence situation, then yeah, we're all fucked. But um, to get there, I really do think it won't be a surprise uh, when, when we get there. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, I could, I could maybe agree with that. Uh, I'm not a, computer science major i'm a poli sci major so uh yeah uh but it's like if you know if we're agreeing that you know we probably all do die if there's a super intelligence what what's the role of regulation in uh in making sure that we have those you know security points (laughs) Um, I mean, just like going off what you said just now, I mean, if it requires people like multiple points of authority to sign off to create this thing, um, if we're on that frontier, uh, we'd be very cautious. I mean, uh, if we all see a meteor coming um, on a trajectory to wipe out humanity as a meteor wiped out the uh, dinosaurs, um, we'd probably start doing shit to mitigate it. Um, so if we ever get to that point, and we all see this coming, um, yeah, maybe take a pause. Um, say like, oh, uh, what do we do here? Uh, will this actually be uh, beneficial for humanity? Um, but yeah, be extremely cautious when that time comes. Although I don't personally see that coming for the next, at the very least, the next decade. Um, kind of due to what Andre mentioned at the beginning, we're reaching a local maximum both in terms of amount of like information to train on and amount of compute power um just because it's kind of exponential the amount of compute power you need to 
just get a little bit of an increase in uh, a model's capabilities. Um, and that's part of the reason why you see these articles about like Sam Altman wanting seven trillion dollars for a new <laughs> a new uh, chip company, which I I just thought that was ridiculous. Um, for once, like twice the U.S. federal budget. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I see it. If we do all see this coming, then we need to take a pause. But as of right now, I don't see us getting anywhere near that. Yeah, I'll give my non-answer, which is um, I I don't think it's a regulatory uh, issue. Certainly, I think regulation can play a limited part. So, for instance, regulation can I don't give incentives um, for companies to uh, uh, to to spend invest more in safety. But I think actually that safety is often aligned with uh, the organizations that are already producing AI. Uh, for instance, so okay, so most AI is being developed uh, by companies uh, who often have uh, a sort of uh, uh, cash incentive, uh, and so. You don't want your model to be unpredictable and to randomly tell users that they're in love uh, with them, or then you know break up with them the next chat later, uh, which I think has happened before. Uh, which is why Microsoft is you know working fast to to uh, address those issues. So I think that in the system, um, safety and model development are uh, fairly aligned goals. So I think, but beyond those incentives, I think it's a technical problem, which is how do you build uh, safety tools. Uh, safety safety boundaries for the development of AI. I think that's that's there and there's a big focus on it. And I think part of people talking about uh, these issues is also what gives it a lot of attention, uh, which is good. Um, yeah, other than that, I, I see it as, as, a, as an important technical problem. Uh, all right, well, we've been going for a while. Uh, Molly, did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so, sorry about that. Yeah, I was curious because I know that there was an issue with deep fakes recently with, I think, Taylor Swift. I think I saw it on Twitter. And I don't know how much you guys know about this topic, so obviously feel free, like, if you just want to give, like, your two cents on it, but you don't know a lot about it. I don't know that much about deep fakes, but I know that they becoming have been becoming a lot more of an issue in recent years. And I know that a lot of times, like, people are saying to be a lot more careful about the photos you put online because people can utilize those to make deep fakes of you and put them on, like, crazy websites. And I was just interested if you guys could, like, if you do know what they are, if you guys could kind of give more of an explanation for listeners of, like, what deep fakes are maybe why they're so controversial and what your own personal thoughts like do you think that they're dangerous do you think that under like supervision or some sort of control they can be okay like i'm just curious what you guys think of them yeah so i can give a quick um explanation for what deep fakes are um deep fakes are just artificially created images or videos uh, which are often targeted towards certain people or institutions so I think, generally speaking, we've seen two big classes of deepfakes. Uh, one of them is directed towards politicians. So if you can show uh, that a politician has shaken hands with an unsavory individual or you know, uh, is signing off on this ludicrous bill, then you can circulate those images and then uh, cause a kind of negative sentiment towards that individual, uh, towards that politician. The other one is, as you mentioned, with... Um, almost like very often like sexual content or kind of like digital revenge porn where you're able to put someone's face 
onto you know a, a, a body committing you know, some kind of sexual act and then in the process uh, you know shame them or cause controversy uh, so on and so forth so the way that these generated um, well I will say that they're getting really really good uh, and they're generated through you know uh, AI uh, tools often and also some kind of editing um, and you can definitely do deep fakes without any AI uh, without a lot of AI and it's been happening for a while, but I think AI tools make it, um, AI tools make it much easier to do it. I will say that things like open AI, these companies, none of their models are trained on sexual, uh, content. So they basically cannot produce sexual explicit content. So all the deep fakes that you're seeing are co coming from people that are, have like, they have open source models and they train them on their own, uh, porn data or something like that. Uh, that being said, one thing, again, I want to give my philosophy non-answer first, which is that if we're living in a society where showing a politician shaking hands with the wrong person and, uh, you know, doing, you know, engaged in some kind of unsavory act is going to convince a sizable proportion of the population to change their vote or not vote, I think the problem is bigger than deepfakes. I think it's a problem of electoral uh, integrity, uh, that people aren't really voting with their material interests, that they're basically voting for something like uh, a kind of spiritual investment in their politician, which I don't think is a solid base for a political system. So in that case, I think uh, it's, it's, it's much bigger of a problem. Of course, there's issues with fake news, uh, which was a big thing with the 2016 election. That's a, another issue though. Uh, when it comes to sexual videos, uh, I think also, uh, I think it's a fact that we live in a culture where uh, sexual sexuality is sort of repressed and seen as taboo that makes uh, sort of sexual deepfakes of people um, that, that makes it powerful. So again, I think it points towards a bigger societal issue. That being said, I think actually the Taylor Swift issue is very interesting. There's this bill um, called the Defiance Act, Disrupt Explicit Forged Images and Non-Consensual Edits Act, very recent this year supported by, let's see, Dick Durbin, Amy Klobuchar, and Josh Hawley, and Lindsey Graham. So a fairly diverse set of people. Uh, and they just want to ban cases in which uh, people are victims of non-consensual sexual videos, uh, generated ones. And I think this is a good step, uh, certainly. I think there are a lot of interesting uh, and very difficult issues, though. Uh, there's the typical issues with consent. Uh, can consent be withdrawn? Uh, uh, you know, especially when you have this relic that persists throughout time. I think the more interesting one is this, which is unique to AI. Here's a concrete scenario, right? Imagine that um, that that someone, there's this girl, let's call her uh, Amy, and Amy looks a lot like Taylor Swift, right? Like so close, but she's not Taylor Swift, right? And someone makes uh, a deep fake of Amy and Amy consents to it, right? Okay, fine. Okay, but that deepfake is shared all across the internet, and people people aren't sharing it because it looks like Amy is there. People share it because it looks like Taylor Swift is there, right? So this is a this is a sort of pathological situation where the intention was not to deepfake Taylor Swift, and there was consent, and that kind of content is protected under law if there is consent. Uh, yeah, nevertheless, there is that kind of negative um, negative effect towards Taylor Swift. So I just think this points out a broader question, which is that it's just hard to distinguish representations 
of individuals to protect individuals in the digital space. Uh, what is going to happen with those law with those situations? I think it's hard to tell. Again, I think it's good that the law passed, but um, it's a tricky situation, right? And I think this is emblematic of other situations that you might find. Wait, Andre, did that law? Um... You mentioned the Defiance Act. Um, did, mm -hmm. did, that, did that ban like all sexually explicit, um, like deepfake style images and videos? I believe so. I'm sure there's typical exclusions of any uh, any bill, but I think it was fairly wide reaching. Interesting, because I'm just wondering how this like ties into free speech issues. I mean, um, if uh, pornography was maintained by the Supreme Court in I forget what ruling um, someone years ago as free speech. Um, how is this really like any different? I mean, if someone is allowed to draw, um, I mean, you can draw like a photorealistic image of Taylor Swift in a sexually explicit like pose or something. Um, that I think that's allowed. Um, how is this really any different? And can you prevent like someone from creating their own model just using the like some open source Python package to create these kinds of images and post it on their own website. I mean, obviously you have social media companies like Twitter and Instagram. I think Taylor Swift's photos were on Twitter. Um, they can ban um, these kinds of photos on their own platform. Um, but are you even allowed to ban someone from making them themselves? Like, does that Defiance Act infringe on free speech? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's been discussions about it. Um, I think on one level, of course, there are obvious limitations to free speech, um, which, you know, we can get into that. But I mean, I don't know, like if someone writes fanfic of Taylor Swift, right, I'm sure that, uh, uh, and publishes it, I'm sure that wouldn't be, you know, objected towards. I think really, so sidestepping all the interesting and important free speech debate things, I just think it really does point towards, I mean, whenever you have regulation of these things, which by these things, I mean things which basically are made important because of the pathologies of society, then it's hard to really get anywhere with regulation. Or if you go somewhere, you have to be very messy about it. The pathologies, I mean, are just about the kind of uh, culture that we have, which sort of uh, somehow damages people if they have video of them on doing sexual acts or something like that. I think ultimately, I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to give my non-answer just because, you know, I like to think about things outside regulation. But imagine that everyone on Twitter, uh, uh, first of all, realized or has some level of consciousness that most of the videos that they see, especially ones in a far out situations like celebrities, you know, in sex acts are probably not real. And uh, B, which isn't so obsessed with shaming people because, you know, they, I don't know, have sex or something, right? If those two things are satisfied, I really don't see what the, what the significant damage uh, is that's been done. Of course, th those are two very tall orders to fulfill, right? But I'm just saying that I think this is a situation where it's a pathologies of, of society, not a shortcoming of regulation. That's the real issue here. Um, uh, of course, it's difficult with celebrities versus private individuals. That's another thing. But um, I think that's the most interesting part of the, of the whole matter. Uh, I looked up the act and I wanted to clarify what it actually did. So it, it creates like a essentially a private right of action to essentially sue someone who makes uh, non-consensual deepfake pornography of you. Um, so it doesn't ban all of it. And 
stuff like that is, has generally been held as like a uh, like an outlier to free speech before. Like you can't um, there there are things that are not considered protected free speech. And I think this would probably fit with a lot of things like that, like explicit violent threats, uh, child pornography is another one that's that's been held to that. Um, so yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for the clarification. Do we want to talk about anything else or do you want to do final thoughts or because we've been going on for a while? Yeah, I feel like you guys have said like a lot of really, really good points and I really appreciate all the answers that you guys have given to our questions. I definitely want to point out a lot of the conversations that we have on this show are definitely coming from more like social science based type of outlook. So it's definitely really cool to hear more of like a like computer science and like tech input on all these issues just because it's so relevant and like intersectional within all these issues. So I really appreciate all of your insights, both of you. And just thank you so much for educating me more because again, this is a topic that I didn't really know that much about. And I feel like I have a way better grasp um, just from hearing your guys' discussion. So thank you so much. No, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having us on. Uh, I was like very excited to be on here and be able to have this discussion. Yeah, definitely. Thank you all for having good conversations. Uh, well, yeah, thank you all for coming on. I think this is a very important conversation to be having right now. Um, and I really enjoyed the conversation. I think I learned a lot. Uh, so thank you both Vivek and Andre for coming on. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and end the recording. And on that note, sunset out. Mm-hmm.